إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد so last week then we began on the chapter Bab Ma Jaa Firruqa Wattama'im The chapter regarding what has been mentioned in terms of the different forms of Ruqya and the Tama'im, the, ta- the uh, talismans and amulets and various things that people wear. We had already covered the first hadith Wafi Sahih. عن ابي بشير الانصاري رضي الله عنه انه كان مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في بعض اسفاره فارسل رسولا ان لا يبقين في رقبه بعير قلاده من وتر او قلاده الا قطعت the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم had sent someone and told him to not leave around the neck of a camel, a qilada, a type of string that they used to place around the necks of the camels, whether it is made of the bow string or if it is of any other type, the narrator doubted but that they are to be cut from the necks of the camels. And that we mentioned last time is because in Jahiliyyah, they used to believe that putting these strings around the necks of their camels would keep away the evil eye from those camels and keep away the harm from them. So the Prophet ﷺ sent someone to go and cut all of those strings off from the necks of the camels because that was an act of shirk that they were engaging in, believing that these strings, bow strings or otherwise, can keep away the evil eye from their animals and keep away the harm from their animals. They are means that are not established as means, they are not legislative means, and neither are they means that are experienced, rather it is a form of shirk to put your trust into those strings around the necks of the camels. And then also, the narration after that, وَعَنْ إِبْنِ مَسْعُودٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالْ سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إن الرقى والتمائم والتولى شرك In this narration, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud رضي الله عنه had mentioned that I heard the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم say that الرقى forms of Ruqya and at tamaim and at tiwala 
the various forms of the amulets and talismans and necklaces and strings that they used to wear, that they are shirk. And that we spoke about last time. And also the hadith عن عبد الله بن عكيم مرفوعا من تعلق شيئا وكلا إليه Whomsoever attaches himself to something, then he will be left to it. That Allah will abandon him to that item. So those who attach strings and necklaces and bracelets and bands and rings and strings and other affairs, believing that they will keep away the evil eye and bring goodness to a person, then they put their trust into those other items. And the hadith says they are going to be left to those other items then. مَنْ تَعَلَّقَ شَيْئًا وُكِلَ إِلَيْهِ Whomsoever hangs something or attaches himself something, then he will be left to that thing. Allah will leave that person. And for the person who is left like that, then certainly he will be destroyed. At-Tama'im, the Shaykh says, Al-Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, rahimahullah ta'ala, shay'un yu'alliqoonahu ala al-awladi yattaquuna bihi al-ayn. It was something that they used to put around their children believing that this would protect them from the evil eye. And that again is the same as all of the other narrations in this chapter, the impermissibility of wearing these types of items and necklaces and strings, believing that they will keep away the evil eye or keep away harm. So the tama'im, they were certain types that they used to put on to their children, believing that it would protect their children from the evil eye. Then we discussed last week the topic regarding the Qur'an. What if a person wears one of these items, but inside of it is purely Qur'an and nothing else. And we mentioned how some narrations exist that some of the Salaf may have allowed it if it was purely from the Qur'an. But in conclusion, as the scholars have said, the correct position and the correct understanding is that even if it is from the Qur'an, then it is still impermissible. And there were several reasons for that. Some of them even beginning with the opinion itself. So Aisha radiallahu anha, and some of them who were upon the opinion of it being allowed, the scholars have said it has never been narrated that any of them actually did it. It's never been narrated that Aisha radiallahu anha or any of the Salaf who were upon that view ever actually implemented that and did it and therefore wore the tama'im of the Qur'an. So it's never narrated any of the Salaf actually did it. 
it was only a principal point that it could be permissible if it's only the Qur'an because we know that the Qur'an is a cure and it can be argued that there is nothing specific about how the Qur'an is a cure and therefore putting it onto yourself written into some type of necklace could be considered one of the means that's what they may say but they never actually did it on top of that as we said that opinion is based upon a prerequisite that doesn't exist in the vast vast majority of the people and that is the prerequisite of a sound aqidah that a person understands the means are not what you put your trust into even if it is a tamima from the Quran only it's not that where your trust is in your trust is in Allah but this is where the prerequisite of that aqidah does not exist amongst the people amongst the people they wear those things and it's as if that piece of string with the Quran in it is their savior and as, as though if that will be what keeps them safe and free from harm, and if they were to lose that, then all of a sudden fear strikes their hearts, then this indicates their aqidah and their trust in Allah is not sound. And the prerequisite for that opinion is an absolute sound and correct and legitimate and upright aqidah, which simply does not exist amongst the people who wear these items. But then on top of that, the scholars, they said there are other reasons too. One of them, because if you're going to write up a small piece of paper with Quran on it, and then wear it on a necklace around your neck, this could lead to the degradation of the Quran. A person forgets and walks into the toilet to use the toilet, and the Quran is on his neck, especially if it is being put around the necks of the children, they are of course going to walk into the toilet. And of course they will be playing and running around and falling around in the mud outside with their friends. It can lead to the degradation of the Qur'an. And so for these types of reasons, the scholars, they did not permit wearing the Qur'an, even if it is only purely the Qur'an. Because as well, it can open up the door to shirk because people don't have the prerequisite of the sound aqidah it starts with it being pure quran maybe but because they don't have the sound aqidah and understanding of the religion you are now opening up a door for them that may lead on to other affairs that are blatantly shirk from the beginning so to close that door of putting your trust into others besides Allah, then it is not permissible to wear even if it is only the Qur'an. And the evidence which is the general and broad evidence is that all of the narrations that prohibit wearing strings and necklaces and tama'im generally, none of them have given any exception specifically for the Qur'an. None of those narrations that mention the prohibition of wearing tama'im, none of them have given an exception about the Qur'an. 
So many of the scholars, they say, you cannot make an exception, even if we know that the Qur'an is a cure, but do it in other ways, the recitation of the Qur'an, etc. This method cannot be used because there are evidences telling us this type of method cannot be used, whether it is Qur'an or other than the Qur'an. So because those negations or those uh, evidences that highlight the impermissibility of wearing the tamaim abroad and general with no exceptions in them, then the Qur'an cannot be made an exception either. So that is the correct opinion that you cannot wear anything even if they claim that this item is purely from the Qur'an and nothing else. That's what we got up to last week. So today then, uh, that's what we finished off last time. لكن إذا كان المعلق من القرآن فرخص فيه بعض الصلف وبعضهم لم يرخص فيه ويجعله من المنهي عنه منهم ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه. So if the Quran, if the uh, item that they are wearing is purely from the Quran, some of the salaf they allowed it and some of them did not, and they said it is prohibited as well. From amongst them, ابن مسعود رضي الله عنه. And that is the correct position and opinion. So then we come on to the next part now, which is Warruqa. Hiya lati tusamma al-azaim wa khassa minha ad-dalil ma khala min al-shirk faqad rakhassa fihi رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من العين والحمى. Now then, the discussion comes on to ruqya. Ruqa, it is basically the plural of ruqya, various different types of ruqya. Ruqa. And he says, هي التي تسمى العزائم. That the commoners... In that land and at that time, the Arabs, they call it Al-Azaim. Al-Azaim. And they intend by these forms of Ruqya. And so the Shaykh, he mentions here, Al-Ruqa, hiya allati tusamma al-Azaim. Al-Ruqa, jam'u Ruqya. Wal-Ruqya, al-Qira'ah ala al-Marid. So what is Ruqya? Ruqya is recitation upon someone ill. Recitation upon someone who's been afflicted by something. Then you are doing Ruqya upon that person. When you are reciting upon that person, that is Ruqya. And there are various forms of Ruqya. Various forms of how they recite and what they recite upon someone who has been afflicted by something. وَقَالَ الشَّيْخُ وَخَصَّ مِنْهَا الدَّلِيلُ مَا خَلَى مِنَ الشِّرْكِ أي اسْتَثْنَاهُ مِنَ التَّحْرِيمِ That there are certain types of ruqya which are exempt from the narrations here talking about the impermissibility of ruqya. The ruqa has been mentioned in this chapter alongside the tamaim and the tiwala and all the other things, the amulets, the talismans, all the things that people wear and put their connection into. Alongside them, ruqya has been mentioned. However, the sheikh highlights 
that there are certain types of ruqya with conditions if fulfilled then those certain types of ruqya are permissible so ma khassa wa khassa minha dalil ma khala min ash-shirk that there are those that are exempt there are types of ruqya that are exempt from the impermissibility and they are permissible and we'll have a look at what they are fahunaka adilla tufassilu because there are evidences that indicate if the ruqya, the recitation that you're doing upon someone afflicted by something, the recitation is ayat of the Qur'an, or it is other legitimate du'as and supplications from the sunnah, then in that case it wouldn't be shirk. You can basically summarize the valid type of ruqya into a few points. When is ruqya valid and allowed? Then there must be a few conditions involved. If those conditions are met, then it is a valid and legitimate and allowed form of ruqya. The first the Shaykh has mentioned there, that the words that you recite, the actual words that you recite, must be free of any shirk. The words, the meanings of those words, they must be free of any shirk. Therefore, they must be from the Qur'an. Recite ayat of the Qur'an, for example. That is clearly legitimate and good ayat of the Qur'an. Or it could be du'as from the sunnah. It could be du'as, ad'iyah, supplications from the sunnah. There are narrations and there are ahadith and there are du'as that you can read from the sunnah upon somebody afflicted with something. What else could it be? If it's not from the Qur'an, it's not from the sunnah, what else can you recite upon someone afflicted? Basically, any other type of general dua, that isn't necessarily an ayah from the Qur'an, it's not necessarily an exact dua with those words in the sunnah, but you're generally saying words that are words of supplication and dua and asking Allah to cure this person, general good words that are not in opposition to the Qur'an, to the sunnah, to tawheed in any way, just general duas, general supplications you're making for this person, in the act of performing ruqya upon them. As long as those words are legitimate and good, then it's not a condition they have to be exact ayat or exact hadith about how the dua is and the words are. It could be generalized in the speech and the phrases that you use, as long as it is legitimate in its meaning of tawheed and has no meaning of shirk in it. So one condition for any ruqya to be valid is that the actual uh, words that you are reciting 
must be legitimate speech that is upon Tawheed and has no form of shirk in it. If a person comes and starts doing Ruqya and in the Ruqya, Ya Ali, Ya Badawi, Ya Hussein, Ya this, Ya that, cure this person, then straight away you know this Ruqya is from the impermissible and haram Ruqya because the words that he's using are not words of Tawheed. So that's one point, that the actual words must be legitimate and correct upon Tawheed with no meaning of shirk in them. The second point as well is that the words must be clear and audible and understandable. Ruqya cannot be done with somebody coming and murmuring. Somebody coming and saying, okay, I'm going to do ruqya, and he starts, this kind of thing. That's not ruqya, impermissible. When somebody does ruqya, you cannot just come, start doing this kind of thing, humming. When somebody's listening to them, it just sounds like he's humming and, and doing these kind of things. Not ruqya. Ruqya, your words must be clear, audible, and understandable. If a person is coming and saying, yes, I'm only reciting the Qur'an, I'm only doing legitimate du'as from the sunnah, only doing legitimate speech, but he's mumbling and humming and you can't even work out what he's saying, you can't even make out the words, then that is not correct. Ruqya must be in an audible, clear way that you can make out the words and understand what is being said, not murmuring and humming and under your tongue and quietly and all these kinds of things, it must be clear and it must be understood. Ma'aloom wa mafhoomul ma'ana, as they say. It must be understood and clear and comprehensible in its meaning. Some of the scholars, they say, in line with that, in line with those first two points, about it being legitimate speech from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, or otherwise any form of legitimate phrasing of du'as, and that it must be clear and understood. Some of the scholars say that the ruqya should therefore, in accordance to those points, be in the language of Arabic. That ruqya should be done in the language of Arabic, because... If it's ayat of the Qur'an, then you're not going to recite upon the person from the translations. You recite the ayat of the Qur'an. And if it's going to be du'as from the sunnah, you're not going to recite the English translations of the du'as upon a person. Recite the actual Arabic du'as. So some of the scholars have mentioned it should be in the Arabic language that the ruqya is done upon a person. And there may be some speech from some of the scholars, even Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, that indicates if a person simply does not know and does not have the ability, that maybe he could say words in a language other than Arabic. But the asal and the default in it is that it is to be done in the Arabic language. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, Every unknown word, unknown speech, incomprehensible speech, then nobody can use those words and statements and speech for ruqya. Fadlan, 
أن يدعو به ولو عرف معناه لأنه يكره الدعاء بغير العربية It is disliked to make that supplication and dua in other than the Arabic language وإنما يرخص لمن لا يحسن العربية فأما جعل الألفاظ العجمية شعارا فليس من دين الإسلام So a person who has no ability to do it in Arabic, they are in a situation where no one can, then maybe some ease may be afforded in that situation to a person. But as for, he says, as for making non-Arabic speech into the, like the default amongst the people in a community, that these are the words you use upon the ruqya upon a person, and they are words in their own language, as though they have memorized them as du'as in their language. This is what you recite. That isn't the way. Rather, the asal is that it's done in Arabic from the ayat of the Qur'an, from the du'as of the sunnah, and in circumstances maybe there could be in the rare and exceptional circumstances where you have to use another language. So it must be clear and audible and understood. It should be in words that are from tawheed and nothing comprising of any shirk if the words comprise of any shirk it's impermissible if the words cannot be understood then that is impermissible also from the conditions of the ruqya to be valid is that the people involved in that ruqya understand and have the prerequisite of correct aqidah that's from the conditions too for the ruqya to be valid and correct and permissible, then the people involved in it must have the correct aqidah. They cannot be believing that this ruqya has some power in and of itself and separate to Allah, or believing that their trust and dependence is in the ruqya, in the means rather than in Allah. A person must have the sound aqidah. And in reality, as the scholars say, ruqya only really has an impact when it is done with people who are upon the sound aqidah. A person who is not, then their ruqya will not have the impact. Or it will not have the reality of the impact. But the ones who truly understand and they are upon iman and true and upright aqidah. For those when they do the ruqya, it sees or you see the real impact from it. And that's the same with all types of supplications. People they say, I read all of my duas in the morning, I read my duas when I left the house, I read all of the normal duas, I have fortress of the Muslim with me 24 hours a day. Everywhere I go I read the relevant duas, but still this happened and still that happened. So the scholars have said one of the reasons is that when you are reading the du'as, do you even understand what the point of the du'a is? When you're reading your du'a to exit from your home, do you understand what this du'a is and why you've been commanded to read it upon exiting your home and what the meaning of it is and why it's a protection for you? If you don't understand any of those things, you're just reading the Arabic, not understanding it, you haven't even barely looked at the English, then how is that going to really impact for you when you have no understanding of what you're reading, why you're reading it, what the meaning behind it is? 
So the scholars, they say, when people complain, but I did this and I read that and I did all of these things Islamically you're supposed to do, but still this happened and still that happened. One of the reasons is because a person doesn't really realize and understand what he's doing or what he's reading or what this dua means, what the impact of it is. And that's exactly the same with the prayer itself. Who is the one that benefits from the prayer the most? The one who fully understands what they are reading throughout the prayer. What they are reading in the ruku'ah and what the meaning of it is. What they are reading in the sujood and what the purpose and meaning of it is. What they are reading in al-fatiha. The meanings of that and the purpose behind that and what Allah says to the one who recites that. The one who knows all of those things is the one who will be upon khushu' in his prayer and will benefit from his prayer more. As for the one who doesn't, then his benefit will be limited and restricted. And one of the best examples is taraweeh. Every time people, they complain all the time, and they say, we don't understand, we go there, we stand, we pray, but they haven't understood what has been recited from the speech of Allah in the prayer. So who's going to benefit more from the taraweeh? The one who understands what the Imam is reciting in every raka'ah as you stand and pray. Or for the one who is stood there and he doesn't know what is being recited, what is being said. No doubt the one who can understand will then focus and have extra khushu' in that prayer, understanding the speech of Allah. So that is the same, that's extra, but the actual core of it, the fatiha, the ruku', the sujood, the tashahud, Every person, every believer should understand properly what the meanings of them are. The du'as that you read then, exiting your home, the mosque, etc. You should understand what they mean and what their purpose is and what Allah is telling you in this du'a. That's when the real impact is then understood or realized by a person. So the same with ruqya. One of the conditions for its validity in this case is that the people be upon the sound and correct and upright aqidah. As for the ones who are upon deviation in their aqidah, and they are using ruqya in their deviated beliefs that it will do this and it will do that, and their trust is in that and other affairs, then that is not a permissible form of the ruqya for them to do. So those are a few. Sometimes the scholars may break them up into five conditions, sometimes into three conditions, four conditions, but those are the main points, that it be in clear, audible Arabic from the texts of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, or any other legitimate ad'iyah, legitimate du'as and supplication, and that the people be upon the correct and sound aqidah. The one doing the ruqya, the one it's being done upon, they should understand the reality of what is occurring here. There's a story of Ibn al-Qayyim, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that one occasion he traveled to Mecca and he got ill in Mecca. He traveled to Mecca on one occasion and he said he became ill. So he says that he searched for a doctor. He searched for a doctor, he made inquiries for a doctor, but there was no doctor to be found. He couldn't get hold of any doctor anywhere. And he was in pain and he was ill. So he says, I then 
did what I could do personally, which was ruqiyah. He says, I did ruqiyah upon myself, ruqiyah recitation of the Qur'an upon myself. And from doing that ruqiyah, he said, Alhamdulillah, the affair was cured for me. He searched for a doctor, he said, I couldn't find a doctor. So then in the end, I had to do the ruqiyah, which was what he could do anyway. He says, I did that and that had the impact before the doctor arrived or before finding the doctor thereafter. So the Shaykh says here then, بِدَلِيلْ أَنَّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ رَخَّصَ فِي الرُّقِيَةِ مِنَ الْعَيْنِ وَمِنَ الْحُمَةِ So now we've mentioned with certain conditions, ruqya can be allowed. But are there evidences to back up this point that with certain conditions, ruqya can be allowed? Of course there is. And we've already come across one of the narrations in the previous chapters. The narration about the one who was stung by a poisonous animal, so he did ruqya. So that is an evidence. And they had said to him as well, it was mentioned, لا رُقِيَةَ إِلَّا مِنْ عَيْنٍ أَوْ That there is no ruqya better, more effective, with more impact than from the evil eye or from the poisonous sting. وَكَذَلِكَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم رَقَ الْمَرْضَى And there are narrations where the Prophet ﷺ himself did ruqya to others. He did the ruqya upon others. There are narrations established where the Messenger did that. And there are narrations established where the Messenger had ruqya done upon him. Jibreel السلام, did the ruqya upon the Prophet So he himself did ruqya upon people and he himself had ruqya done to him. This is established in the sunnah of the Prophet وَكَذَلِكَ لَمَّا جَاءُوا إِلَى النَّبِيِّ يَسْأَلُونَهُ And also there's the hadith where they came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him about ruqya, because in Jahiliya they used to do ruqya, recite certain affairs upon the one afflicted by something. So they came to the Prophet ﷺ after they had now entered into Islam to ask him about their practices of ruqya and what they used to recite upon the one afflicted. So they said, Kunna narqa fil Jahiliya. فَقُلْنَا كَيْفَ تَرَى فِي ذَلِكَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ They said, we used to do ruqya in jahiliyyah. So how do you see that? Or what is your opinion on that, O Messenger of Allah? So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, He said, show me, tell me which ruqyas you used to do. What did you recite? What did you used to say? What did you used to do? لَا بَأْسَ بِهَا مَا لَمْ تَكُنْ شِرْكًا and he told them there is no problem with them as long as there is no shirk involved in them. Your words and your speech and what you're saying, as long as there's no shirk in them, then the rest of them are okay. So this is another clear evidence, hadith in Sahih Muslim, where the Prophet told them as long as there is no shirk involved in those words and things you used to say, then those forms of ruqya otherwise are permissible. 
وقوله رخص فيه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من العين والحمى that in that previous narration or here as well in this part فقد رخص فيه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من العين والحمى that the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم gave a rukhsa for evil eye and the poisonous sting Ar-Rukhsa in the Arabic language, or, uh, in the Usul uh, al-Fiqh, in the religious sense. Ar-Rukhsa is essentially an exception out of the default. The default ruling on a particular issue is known as the Azima. The Azima is the default hukam upon a particular issue. Then you may have some exceptions out of that where in some circumstances the ruling can be eased off, those circumstances are known as the rukhsa. So the default with ruqya is that it's impermissible, along with all of these other narrations. But the rukhsa was given that it's permissible in those conditions if they are fulfilled. And from amongst those was from the issue of the evil eye and the issue of the poisonous sting. فَالرُّخْصَ عِنْدَ الْأُصُولِيِّينَ مَا ثَبَتَ عَلَى خِلَافِ دَلِيلٍ شَرْعِي لِمُعَارِضٍ رَاجِحٍ So a rukhsa is something which is proven in opposition to the normal legislated evidence. Normally the legislated evidence, the sharia, the ruling, the hukum is something and then you find a matter, an issue that is outside of that ruling. It doesn't fit into the ruling given. And so that is the exception, the rukhsa out of that. Because of some evidence, you have to have some evidence to be able to extract an exception or a rukhsa from something. And here clearly there are the hadith where the Prophet said, لا إلا من عين and those kinds of narrations, and that one they iradu alayya ruqakum, la ba'sa biha ma lam takun shirka. So, ar-rukhsa wal-azima, fa-shay al-mustathna min al-mamnu'i bi-dalil, yusamma rukhsa. So, something which is exempt from the ruling, something which is exempt from the normal ruling due to an evidence, that is then a rukhsa out of the azima. And the Shaykh gives some examples, eating, we spoke about this before, eating a dead animal that has not been slaughtered. It has not been slaughtered. The default ruling on a dead animal that has not been sacrificed is that it is haram to eat. That is the hukam. That is the ruling established in the religion. حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةِ it is haram to eat the dead animals that haven't been sacrificed. But then there are evidences to indicate an exception can be made. And those evidences are in times of necessity. You're about to die your life. You have to value that over that. So in times of need and necessity, a haram action may be permissible, etc. So that's an example Another example the Shaykh gives is shortening the prayer when you're traveling. Because now the default ruling, the hukam regarding the prayer is 
that Dhuhr is four raka'at and Asr is four raka'at and Isha is four raka'at. That's the default established hukam of the prayer. But then an exception can be extracted from that whereby the ruling can now be that you only have to pray two for Dhuhr and only two for Asr and only two for Isha. That's now a rukhsa extracted out from the default established hukam of four raka'at for all of those prayers. And that rukhsa has been established now because of the multiple narrations about the travelers and how you can shorten your prayers. Uh, so all of those are considered a rukhsa. Uh, Sheikh also talks about the Ramadan and certain people when they would be allowed to miss their fasting. The default is to fast in Ramadan, but there may be certain exceptions to be taken out. The point therefore is, here, Ruqya, reciting these incantations and various types of speech they used to do, it's haram and impermissible. But with these conditions we've mentioned, it can be legitimate and is legitimate, the recitation of the Qur'an, etc., so we know, for example, the Prophet ﷺ used to recite the Qur'an prior to sleeping, reciting certain chapters of the Qur'an, and then blowing over himself and rubbing all of his body with that. That is from the ruqya, that is from the forms of the ruqya. And we know there are certain other clear examples in the sunnah, the example of the companions when they went to that people, and they requested from those people to uh, uh, entertain them, meaning to invite them as guests and to look after them. But those people refused. And then the leader of those people got stung by a poisonous animal, a scorpion or the likes. So then they came to the companions and they said, is there anybody from you who can help him? So then they said, but you never uh, treated us as guests, etc. A hadith goes on, but in the end, they go and they recite upon him Al-Fatiha and he's cured. So that is another clear example of Ruqya via the Qur'an, Ruqya via the recitation of the Qur'an upon a person. So that is Ruqya. Then you have all of the other issues about the methods of Ruqya, what's allowed and what's not allowed. In that story of Ibn Qayyim, in the full story, he actually mentions that he recited upon water and then he was drinking that water that's something differed over between the scholars some of them say yes yes it's okay to do that to recite upon zamzam he mentions in the story he recited over zamzam and then drank the zamzam some of the scholars they allow it like ibn al-qayyim other scholars they say no there's nothing really in the sunnah that indicates ruqya is to be done in that way of reciting upon water and drinking it but those are issues and details in the actual forms of how to perform that ruqya. Generally speaking, if somebody is afflicted by something, you place your hand over the area where they are afflicted and you recite upon them. Uh, and uh, the recitation that is done, there are certain parts of the Qur'an that are mentioned which have more of an impact in those types of situations and scenarios, especially if it was the evil eye. And they are mentioned uh, ayat from Surah Al-Baqarah at the end and other parts of the Qur'an. So that is the general form of the ruqya, place the hand upon where that illness is. And there's also a, a, a bit of a difference between the scholars as to whether ruqya is for 
internal illnesses, diseases of the heart, or whether ruqya can be done upon physical illnesses. And the reality, obviously, from these evidences like that when he was stung by a poisonous animal, is that they are for physical illnesses too. A person has a physical illness or physical pain, then you can do ruqya upon that. You can recite upon it. And when we were talking about the people, they have to have the sound and correct aqidah and be upon iman. From that, the scholars, they say, the best people to do ruqya upon a person are the person himself. And if he's not able, then his own family. And you don't need to go out, can you find me someone who can do ruqya? Can you find me this? Can you find me that? The scholars say the family of that person should get the Qur'an and recite upon him. Because the family, they say, the family of that person, they are going to do it with real conviction. They want their beloved one to become cured. So that, the scholars say, you may find more of that conviction in the family member than some outsider you bring in. Especially these days with the checks that they charge as well. He comes and he does his job and now the time's up halfway through the ayah. Allah alam if he's going to finish or charge extra. So now these affairs, the scholars, they say the own family is more suitable. So when people, they sometimes ask, can you find me someone who can do ruqya? Does anybody do ruqya? Then reality is, first you recite upon yourselves and ask your family members to recite upon you in those uh, circumstances. And as for what we said before, from the 70,000 who enter paradise, one of them is who doesn't seek ruqya from the people. Some of the scholars have mentioned that it is only in certain circumstances that they don't seek the ruqya in certain circumstances. And it would not be an absolute statement either because I've heard people in the past, they say, okay, I need the ruqya. No one can do it, but I don't want to ask because of that narration. In some circumstances, you may not be within that narration of asking. So there are some details to that as well. But they come up in separate, independent books on the ruqya. You can get all of the details of ruqya, the ayat, the narrations from the Qur'an, and here and there, and the sunnah, different forms, examples of the Prophet doing it, of it being done to him. There are books for that, but that's not the chapter here. Here the point is, ruqya is impermissible in the way they used to do it, with their recitations and incantations, and words of shirk in there, or mumbling and other things in there. But it's permissible if it's on words of Tawheed from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, done with clear, audible speech that is understood and comprehensible, and the people are upon aqidah. Then what tiwala? Hiya shay'un yasna'oonahu yaz'amuna annahu yuhabbibu al-mar'ata ila zawjiha wal-rajul ila mra'atihi. At-tiwala, he comes to this now, at-tiwala. He says, that is something, yaz'umuna, meaning that they claim, and it is a claim upon lies. Claim here, meaning that they lie. They lie and they say, that this is something which makes the woman more beloved to her husband. So they used to wear certain... Uh, talismans or amulets, certain types of things, believing that these items wear them and it will make you, to the woman, make you more beloved to your husband. 
and that the husband will have more affection and love for you. And they used to believe such that if it is removed or broken, then the love between you and your husband, or in particular your husband's love for you, will deplete and it will be broken. So this again clearly falls into the chapter we are discussing of the impermissibility of that. And some scholars, when it comes to this particular chapter, and it comes to that particular point, at-tiwala, that they used to wear something believing it creates love between the husband and the wife. Some scholars, when it gets to this, they talk about the wedding rings. The wedding rings. And they say, some scholars say, that the wedding rings, they fall under the same ruling. That the wedding ring, amongst the kuffar, it is a symbol of love. It is a symbol of the love between them and the connection between them. And that's exactly what this is talking about. So some of the scholars say these wedding rings fall under the same type of ruling. It's the same kind of concept. This is a symbol of their love for each other. And that is the connection between them. And that is the, the relationship and the bond between them. So the scholars have mentioned it is impermissible. And the Shaykh al-Albani even said, the wedding finger, which is the second finger, the small finger, then the second finger is the wedding finger. Shaykh al-Albani said they used to do this. For the wife and the husband, they used to say, in the name of the father, and in the name of the son, and in the name of the spirit, I marry you. So in the name of the father, the thumb, and then the index finger, in the name of the son, in the name of the spirit, I marry you. So the next finger becomes the wedding finger. As Shaykh al-Albani said, that's where this practice came from. So he clearly mentions the impermissibility of using these wedding rings and wearing wedding rings on the wedding finger. It is not a Muslim practice to do that. So here in Jahiliyyah, they used to wear these things believing that it creates love between the husband and the wife and that the wife becomes more beloved to her husband. And the Shaykh says, in reality, this was a form of magic and it comes under the fields of magic. فَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُمَا مَا يُفَرِّقُونَ بِهِ بَيْنَ الْمَرْءِ وَزَوْجِهِ فَهُوَ سِحْرٌ يُفَرِّقُ وَيَجْمَعُ So that was magic that separated and united. It was عَمَلٌ شَيْطَانِ A satanic act that they used to engage in, claiming that the husband and the wife, they become more beloved, and the woman becomes more beloved to her husband by wearing these certain amulets or, or necklaces or whatever it was. And then the narration coming up, Rawa Ahmed an Ruwayfi' qala qala li Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Ya Ruwayfi' la'alla al-hayata satatulu bika fa'akhbirin nasa anna man aqada lihyatahu aw taqallada watara aw istanja birajee'i dabbatin aw azmin fa'inna muhammadan bari'un minhu in the narration, the Prophet says to Ruwayfi' Ruwayfi' ibn Thabit al-Ansari He says to him that, O oh, Ruwayfi' perhaps you will live a long time 
perhaps you will have a long life. And this, the scholars say, is from the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ, because indeed Ruwayfi' lived a long life. So the Prophet says to him, Ruwayfi', perhaps you will live a long life. nas. So tell people, during your life, tell people, that whomsoever aqada lihyatahu this is the first one mentioned aqada lihyatahu ties knots in his beard the scholars have differed over the meaning of what tying knots in the beard means some of them the sheikh mentions here it was from the habit of the persians that when they went into battle they would tie uh, knots into their beards and that would make them look more courageous and it would look more frightening to the enemy with these knots in their beards that they would tie and braid and knot their beards in a particular way. So some of them say that was the meaning of this narration about not tying the knots in the beards because that would then be imitating the kuffar the Persians who used to do that, the kuffar at that time. Others have said that the meaning of not tying your beard is in reference to the prayer. That you don't mess about in the prayer with the beard. That you don't do this kind of thing and you don't do this and this and hand in the beard and here and there and doing all these things with your beard during the prayer. Tying knots and running your fingers and uh, round and round and all these kinds of affairs with your beard during the prayer. Some scholars have said that's what the meaning of it is. Because it is impermissible to make unnecessary movements during the prayer and that would be considered an unnecessary movement moving around the beard and fingers here and there. So some say that's the meaning. Others they say that the meaning of it is Al-Muradu من تجعيد لحاهم وتحسينها وكدها حتى تتجعد يقصدون بها الجمال that people of elevated financial status the rich and the luxurious that they would um, curl their beards they would curl up their beards and tie these knots around in their beards and that was a form of beautification of their beards for the rich and the wealthy. Now this was a type of status symbol that they would curl up their beard, make it all curly and uh, tied into knots or braids or that nature. And that was something of elevation for the rich and the wealthy uh, that they used to do. So that the, so the Prophet prohibited doing that is the opinion of some of the scholars. There is a fourth opinion as well. Some scholars, they say that it was a practice that was done by the people. They used to tie knots into their beards in order to make or in order to keep away the evil eye. They used to believe tying knots into your beard keeps away the evil eye from you. So that's what some of the scholars have mentioned, that it was uh, a means of keeping away the evil eye. So the narration mentions that the Prophet said to him, tell them that whomsoever ties knots into his beard, curls up his beard like that, or whomsoever 
تَقَلَّدَ وَتَرًا We already spoke about this, the bow and arrow. They would take off the string from the bow and arrow and make a necklace out of it, a string out of it to put on the camels or themselves. The Prophet is mentioning that here. Whoever does that, takes the bows, the strings, and makes them into the necklace to put their trust into, believing it keeps away the evil eye. Or, إِسْتَنْجَى بِرَجِيعِ دَابَّةٍ وَعَظْمٍ or the one who purifies himself, cleans himself, after answering the call of nature, after answering the call of nature, that you then need to clean yourself in your private areas, to use raji'u dabba, meaning the dried dung of an animal, out in the woods or the forest or those kinds of areas, an animal, the dung of an animal dries up in the sun and it becomes like a, like a stone, dried up dung. To use the dried up dung to clean yourself or to use bones. To use bones. Raji'u dabbatin aw azmin. To use the dung of an animal or bones. Bones that you find to use those. Whoever does any of these actions, whoever ties the knots in his beard, whoever uses the bowstring to wear as an amulet or talisman, and whomsoever cleanses himself with dried dung or bones, then the Prophet ﷺ is innocent of them, declares his freedom of them. That's what the Prophet told Ruwayfi to tell the people. Anyone who does those three actions, then Muhammad ﷺ is innocent of them, free from them. And when you see that type of statement in a hadith, it means that the actions are not just minor sins, but they are major sins. Anytime the Prophet ﷺ says, I am innocent, or I am free, I declare my freedom from the one who does X, Y, and Z, indicating it is a major sin. The point of the narration is clear. The main point here for this chapter is that the second part of those three parts was The Prophet ﷺ told him, whomsoever uses the strings as they did to ward off the evil eye and to bring good, then the Prophet ﷺ declares his innocence from them. And the final narration here, An Sa'id, Ibn Jubair Qala Man qata'a Tamimatan Min insanin Kana ka'idli Raqabah That who arawahu wa kiya So whomsoever Cuts the tamima From a person Somebody's wearing one of these amulets Or talismans Whomsoever cuts that off that person, gets rid of it from that person, then it is equivalent to freeing a slave. The narration, many of the scholars have mentioned this particular narration has weakness in it. It is not established that there is weakness in this particular narration. But the meaning of it in terms of removing that evil is valid. The implementation of it is only the same as man ra'a minkum munkaran. Whomsoever sees from you an evil. 
then remove it with your hand. If you can't, then with your tongue. If you can't, then hate it with your heart. In this case, similar to that, if you have the authority to remove that from a person, then do so physically. You see your son or your, your nephew or someone, you have the authority over them. What are you doing? Get rid of it and you take it off them. Where you have the authority, you can remove it physically from a person. And where you don't have that authority, then it will not be possible to do that. And so this type of narration in its absolute sense only applies to the waliul amr. To all of his citizens, he can tell them you have to remove it. But anybody else, to the level of their authority that they have, then you should stop this type of shirk occurring. And the final narration is connected to what we've already spoken about. وَلَهُ عَنْ إِبْرَاهِيمَ النَّخَعِ قَالَ كَانُوا يَكْرَهُونَ التَّمَائِمَ كُلَّهَا مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ وَغَيْرِ الْقُرْآنِ that they used to uh, believe as impermissible all of the tama'im. Yakrahuna here does not mean that they used to dislike the tama'im. Yakrahuna here means that they used to declare them haram. Yuharrimuna tama'ima kullaha. That they viewed all of the tama'im to be haram. Min al-Qur'ani wa ghayri al-Qur'an. Whether it was from the Qur'an or other than the Qur'an. So that's uh, in relation to the topic we already spoke about uh, regarding the Qur'an. So that there, those two chapters there, they give you an abundance of evidences regarding the impermissibility of what so many people fall into, wearing different types of necklaces and bracelets and uh, rings and whatever it might be, strings, believing that these items have some ability or that they are a means to protect you from the evil eye. Tawheed tells us that is not the case. The reality here from the evidences tells us that is not the case. Their actions are actions that are impermissible. That's the end of that chapter then. Next week we'll begin with the next chapter insha'Allah, which is the chapter regarding seeking barakah. Another thing that many people they fall into, seeking baraka, tabarruk. Who can you seek baraka from? How can you seek baraka? The rulings regarding all of that will be spoken about in particular. When people give examples, did the companions not used to get baraka from the messenger? Yes, they did. So now next week, inshallah, we'll speak about the topic of baraka. How baraka can be achieved from someone is it like how some of the deviants say, go to the imam and he'll wipe on you and you wipe on him and that gives you barakah? Or if somebody goes to hajj and they come back, then wipe and some of the barakah comes onto you. So we'll discuss that from next week, inshallah ta'ala. So if there's any questions, then we can have a look. Paying money for ruqya, it's about the Qur'an and whether you can take money upon the Qur'an. And there is a difference over it, whether it is permissible to take money over the Qur'an. Uh, and, and the scholars have mentioned there are certain types of instances where it is permissible, of course. Like, for example, a teacher, you hire a teacher, you're going to pay that teacher for their time uh, and their effort and their hours. And... You cannot expect them to do it for free because if the option is 
either the teacher gets paid for that time or if you don't pay them he can't do it he has to go and get another job where he can earn some money for his family he cannot do it on a voluntary basis so then you're allowed to pay that person money to teach the quran to the children so it's the issue of whether money is allowed upon the quran or not but there are scholars who have mentioned from the evidences there are exceptions and it is allowed but clearly even upon the permissibility of it all the scholars have spoken against what people do these days the 500 pounds or the 300 pounds just for the initial consultation and then after that once the problem has been discovered another 500 for the actual first session it's like when you go to the dealerships the car dealerships i had a problem with uh, my car the other day the satnav rung up the dealership i said can can i speak to one of the mechanics i just want to find out which buttons to press to reset the satnav and the receptionist she says well i can book you in book you in a hundred pounds for the diagnosis i said i just want two minutes of the mechanics time i just want to find out the buttons to reset it i can book you in hundred pounds for the diagnosis then we'll decide how much more to tell you the buttons to press so now it's like this 300 pounds consultation 500 for the first session half an hour another 500 for another session that type of thing the scholars have clearly rebuked and no scholar is going to tell you this is okay and that should be done so even if something was taken for the same type of ruling as a teacher putting their time and effort in because sometimes the way it happens people become known for doing ruqya and everybody's ringing them and calling can you come here can you come there can you come here then okay maybe that person could say look i am able to do it i do have i'm half of the quran i have understanding of these affairs the du'as i do it but the amount people want of my time i have no choice i have to take something because otherwise either i don't do it then and i go and work or i do it but i have to take something so then in that case maybe in those situations but not the exaggeration that the people are upon Is it permissible for a person to say maybe this is because of my sins when something bad happens to them? It is possible. Sometimes an affair may occur to a person which is a result of his sins. And that's why Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah said, if somebody oppresses you, the first thing to look at is yourself. When someone oppresses you, you think, zulm has been done to me. Oppression has been done to me. The first thing to look at is yourself. He says, look at yourself. Are you fulfilling all the obligations to Allah? Are you fulfilling all the commandments? Are you staying away from all the prohibitions, etc.? Look at your own state. If you find weaknesses everywhere in your own state, then don't bother looking at he oppressed me and he did this and he did that. Rectify yourself first. And there are other narrations to indicate that, yes, it can be sometimes as a consequence of bima kasabat nas for what the hands of the people have earned for themselves. It doesn't mean though that a person should start saying, this is because of my sins and this is because of this wrong and that wrong. If you feel in a, in a, of yourself when something occurs and you think maybe it's because of my sins, you don't go and advertise or say that, but you rectify yourself. If you recognize that, yes, I've been short, I've been falling short in this and in that and in this worship, that worship, then rectify yourself in those worships and so that is a means of your du'a being answered and the difficulty being removed. Ustaz, how do you know when you, if you need ruqya? Say an example, something keeps happening to you or something's not happening to you. How do you know? How do you know if you need ruqya? So 
the reality is the default amongst people has become that anything which happens, they think they need Ruqya these days. Sheikh um, Al-Ithaymeen, he said some people these days, they catch a cold. They're feeling a bit groggy, they catch a cold. They say, khalas, evil eyes been done upon me. This has happened to me. That, find a Raqi now. Go ring someone, my son. Find a, someone to do Ruqya. I don't know what's happened to me today. These sniffles and this, I don't know what's happening. Sheikh Al-Ithaymeen said, relax, you got a cold. You'll be okay in two days. The reality is these days the people, they have exaggerated the affair. Something happens, oh, I had a dream the other day as well, you know, and this and that. And everything has to be evil eyes happened, magic has happened. Not necessarily. So the people need to calm themselves over the affairs. Calm themselves over these matters. It's not as exaggerated how the people have exaggerated it. Rather, if you see something like that, begin with the basics. Fulfill your, uh, the commandments of Allah, make sure that you're praying all of your prayers properly. Make sure you're doing all your du'as of the day. The morning du'as, the evening du'as, the du'as after the prayers. Understand the meanings of them like we said. Start with all of those basics first. A person says, I've got evil eye on me, I've got this on me, I've got that on me. Find someone to help me, find someone this, find someone that. And yet he's a person who barely establishes his five prayers properly yet. Start with that. Start with rectifying your worship and your obedience by abandoning the evils and the sins you're doing, start with that. That's where the rectification begins. That's what they say. The scholars say, a person who is upon firm tawheed, firm tawheed and iman, then it is less likely for that person to be afflicted by the uh, evil eye and the, the uh, magic and those affairs. That tawheed is one of the key ingredients to strengthen a person and keep him safe from those affairs. So begin with the basics. And it's not the case of every time something happens, then we need to find a, a someone to do ruqya, to do this, to do that. Let's uh, do some of these as well. They've written them and sent them. Can I have hijama performed upon me by someone who is well-trained but suffers from jinn affliction? Allahu alama, you know, it's these kind of questions, they are... There are questions which are of a specific type of scenario and situation where really you would prefer that a scholar gives you an answer on these particular scenarios and situations. But a person who suffers from jinn affliction doesn't necessitate that it's going to harm you. But it depends on what that person's affliction is and how that person's affliction is. And then a person can decide whether it is suitable for them to have the hijama done from such an individual or not. Somebody has sent a question here, I think we were talking about it last week. Certain types of bands that are claimed to be medical, that they have some medical benefit if you wear these bands, there are certain chemicals in them and they can help you and aid you. Uh, I don't know of the latest updates on this type of affair. Years ago when they first came out, years ago, uh, uh, 20 years ago or more, Sheikh bin Baz, when he was asked about them, he said the same thing that we mentioned at the beginning. It has to be established medically that there is a connection between them and the cure that they are claiming. There has to be some established connection. 
It has to be proven. It cannot just be where this band, it's got something in it. It somehow soaks into your skin and whatever and you get cure for this or that. There has to be some experience behind that. Something that is a direct connection between it. So I don't know. I don't know what the uh, speech is regarding these types of affairs these days and how much uh, research there is into them. The default would be that they are not permissible until it can be established that they are. What is the difference between a Muslim, a Mu'min, and an Abid? So, a difference between the Muslim and the Mu'min in terms of the levels of Iman, which one is higher? The Mu'min. Because a Muslim is a person who enters into Islam, the scholars, they say, the circles. When you enter into Islam, you enter into the circle of Islam. Then as you increase in your worship and become stronger, you enter into the circle within that circle, the circle of Iman. Then as you improve and improve and improve, within that circle, there's a tiny circle you can get into, the circle of Ihsan. So the Mu'min is a higher level than the Muslim in terms of the levels of Iman. Otherwise, that's in terms of the levels of Iman. But when you're talking about these terms generally, then they are simply a distinction between a believer and a non-believer, a mu'min and a kafir. Someone who's a believer, someone who's not. So in the general usage of them, it's just a difference between a believer and a non-believer. But specifically, when you talk about the levels of Islam, the mu'min is higher than the Muslim and the muhsin is higher than both of them. And the abid, when they talk about this term abid, it means somebody who is uh, a worshipper. And probably the question is related to like the narration of the man who killed 99 people and then he went to an abid and asked him, is there any repentance? The abid, the worshipper, he was a worshipper, but he was not a person of knowledge. He said to him, you can't repent now. So he killed him as well. In that kind of scenario, an abid, you might find it in some of the narrations in relation to a worshipper who is not necessarily a scholar. Even in the hadith about the virtues of the scholars over the other people, like the virtue of the moon over the other stars, the virtue of the scholar over the abid is that the scholar is a person of knowledge. The abid is a worshipper. He doesn't have all that much knowledge, but he worships and worships. So perhaps that's what the person is asking about here. That's the same as the other question. This one's been answered now. Are we allowed to wear a small Quran around our neck as a form of protection? The correct opinion is no. Uh, what if the wedding ring is worn on the right hand? <laughs> the wedding ring, uh, the scholars, they say the wedding ring, it is an imitation of the kuffar. And as Sheikh al-Albani highlighted, the reason why that ring, that uh, finger was chosen as the wedding finger is because in the wedding ceremony, they used to say in the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, I marry you. So that whole process and the whole source of it, it is mentioned and possibly uh, attributed to the Christian practice. And therefore it is not something Muslims should do. That wearing of the wedding ring, there's no doubt it is an imitation of the kuffar, a wedding ring. So uh, you can buy a general ring. Your husband can buy you a ring. 
an expensive ring, but not a wedding ring that is given on the wedding as a wedding ring, a general gift, otherwise no problem. I think this is going to take a while. Maybe we'll leave some of these for next time. Uh, this one about how do I know what Salafiyya is and who the Salafis are and the right sect. Let's leave that one till next time after the end of next week's lesson, inshallah ta'ala. Is there anything else then? Um, you know, um, then, uh, Muslim, uh, then uh, people back, Slaves existed, but the slaves that existed at that time, they were not like what you think of slaves now. There's an example, one time Umar ibn al-Khattab, he was traveling with his slave to some other place. When they got to the other place, the people there didn't know who Umar ibn al-Khattab was. They knew he was coming, but they didn't know what his face looked like. So when he arrived there, him and his slave, the people didn't know from the two of them which one is Umar ibn al-Khattab and which one is the slave. What does that prove to you? That the slaves were treated not like what you think of now when you see in the books and things how slaves are treated. They were treated in a completely different way. You have to buy the clothes for the slave and Umar ibn al-Khattab brought the clothes for him and gave him the items as though to the level they could not distinguish which one is the slave and which one is the, the, the owner of the slave. So it's not what you imagine slavery to be. It's not like that at all. If somebody uh, needs ruqya done upon them, a family member of yours, for example, then it is good and befitting that you explain some of these affairs to them prior to doing it, because all of that will help them as a part of the process to understand what ruqya is, how it's going to help them, what effect it can have for them, and for them to understand the reality of where their aqidah is, where their trust is supposed to be. That should be done. You should explain that to them prior to doing the ruqya. Also, sir, you know, as somebody who's, uh, let's say somebody's uh, doing the ruqya for family member, should you have the belief that Allah, will, that Allah will cure them or that you hope that Allah will cure them? Because sometimes people want a sheikh or fulan because they believe, you know, he's got you know, higher iman. So, you know, these kind of things. So, mm -hmm. what, what should Allah no, be I mean, of the raqi? It is a fair point that a person with a greater level of knowledge and iman is the uh, uh, appropriate type of person to choose to do ruqya. But like we said, you don't go out all the time, find me, find me, find me. Someone in your family who can recite the Quran, they understand the basic affairs, and they are more knowledgeable than the rest of you in the family, they do it then. But uh, uh, to look for the one who is the more knowledgeable, the one with the greater iman in your family, that family member, for him to come and do the ruqya is better. Hmm. People claim that during Rukia, if you see a vision or you see the face of a person, it's a true vision and that person is responsible for it. Is that correct? If what happens? If during the Rukia you see the face of a person or you see an image of a person or something like that, that it, that person is responsible for doing magic or something. Is that correct? I don't know about that. I've never heard of that. Allah alam, if the scholars have ever mentioned anything about that, that you see a vision. I've heard of stories that are clearly impermissible. There was a, a, a true story I've heard of. A person used to claim to be a healer, a healer, he heals the people. 
cures the people when they have medical problems. And they used to come to him and uh, his process was he would get children, five, six, seven, eight-year-old children, nine, ten, sit them in a circle and then they would all go into a trance. And the person who needed the cure, the ill person would be in that circle. The ill person, then all these children and then him. And then they all go into a trance and the children start speaking from this trance. I can see him coming and he's coming from here and he's, he's, he's uh, from that side he's coming and the kids are talking. And then they see the jinni coming. And then after that the man starts saying, and the, the person who's ill hasn't even told him what the illness is. And the man starts saying, okay, so you have a problem in your kidney or you have this issue here. And he's highlighting the exact medical problems the person has. The jinni has come. The jinni has the ability to look and this and that and whatever. And they do it in this way. And then he's not, yes, it's this and it's that. And the person there is thinking, I, I, I don't know who this person is. How has he worked out all my medical problems? All the medicines that I take. And all these things that they do, this is all from haram. That is not from the way of the ruqya at all. So these images appearing to you, Allah alam, it does not sound to be something correct. Uh, so, thank you, Ustaz. Uh, we've got a, a WhatsApp group, some Salafi boys in there, and we could do with an elder. So I was wondering if you're going to join the group or. What kind of a question is that on the platform here? <laughs> we'll come back to that another time. Huh? Anybody else? Is there any benefit of listening to a ruqya that's been recorded of a particular rafi? No, because uh, the ruqya has to be done, it's an act of worship, it has to be done with an intention. Listening to a, a raqi who's done some ruqya, and then you're going to play that ruqya like that, it doesn't work like that. That's, uh, if it's Qur'an, you're listening to Qur'an, that's good. Listen to Qur'an generally, Listen to, listening to Qur'an is a good thing, but like something which has been recorded as a ruqya, and he's going to do certain du'as in there and certain other supplications in there. It's a ruqya recording. That's not uh, to be done in that way. Is there reward of listening to the Qur'an? Qur'an, of course. Listening to the Qur'an, there is reward. That's a good thing to do, to listen to the Qur'an. Is there certain parts of the Qur'an which are a cure for different types of illnesses? Or is it... There are. Uh, I mean, uh, there are certain parts that are mentioned to be recited in certain situations. It doesn't necessitate that there are clear hadith saying in this part we that. But the scholars have highlighted from general evidences and from the, um, uh, the practice of the Prophet ﷺ in reciting certain parts of the Qur'an for certain things, like the end of Al-Baqarah and those kinds of examples. We'll come to that. There's a chapter yet on magic and evil eye. Here we're not talking about evil eye actually. Here we're talking about the means that you used to protect from evil eye. We haven't actually talked about what evil eye is yet. We'll get to that inshallah. There's a chapter, there's not one chapter, multiple chapters around the topics of magic and evil eye. We'll get to all those later inshallah. Anybody else? We've already covered that. The hadith, لا رقية إلا من عين أو حما. There is no ruqya uh, except from evil eye or the poisonous thing. Does that mean that ruqya is impermissible from any other types of illnesses or not? It doesn't. So then what does the hadith mean? 
that there is no ruqya better than in the situation of doing it from evil eye upon someone or a poisonous thing. When you do ruqya upon someone who has evil eye, it has a big impact. When you do ruqya upon someone who's been stung by something poisonous, it has a big impact. Other illnesses, other pains, you can do ruqya and the impact may not be as great. The hadith is indicating those two things, the impact is the greatest in them. It's like the example we gave last time when you say there is no car after the BMW. Is there no car after the BMW? Millions of them. But what does it mean, my statement? There's no car after the BMW. Meaning I'm trying to tell you that that's the best one. Don't tell me there's any other car after the BMW. It's a phrase. So it's like this in Arabic as well. There is no ruqya except in the evil eye and the sting. Meaning that's the best in the evil eye and the sting, the most impact. Last one, anyone? Go on. Uh, the condition about ruqya having to um, sound clear, does that mean that the person who's having ruqya done upon them has to be able to hear it? Or does it just mean that whoever's doing ruqya has to say something, even if it's silently, it is no. Not silently, it has to be heard by those there. If it's silently, then he's mumbling to himself. Nobody knows what he's saying. It must be audible, it must be heard, and it must be uh, comprehensible. Otherwise, he can claim, yes, I'm saying this, it's Quran I'm reciting, but you can't even work out what he's saying. He's mumbling to himself. It must be clear and audible and heard and understood. All right. Uh. Of who? It's possible. That is possible, maybe. Allah, it is possible. Those kinds of things can occur. The jinn overcoming a person, that is real. And it occurs. So maybe Allah, it could be true, some of these kinds of stories. Hmm. No, but that, that, like Sheikh Islam said, maybe a person, you know, he may not understand. But uh, in the circumstance, he doesn't understand, but the Raqi does, and the others present do, it's Quran, it's uh, evidences, then that's still okay. The Raqi is going to recite in Arabic, etc. You can explain to him the ayat, you're going to recite what their meanings are, so that he has a comprehension of what's being read and what the impact of that should be upon him as well. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Inshallah, we'll resume from next week. Does ruqya enter into a medicine? Technically, it is a medicine. It is a form of medicine. It's used to cure. It is used to do the cure. But... You know, if you want to put it into sciences, is it a medicine, like a paracetamol is a medicine? But I don't know if you can't really say those kinds of things because medicine these days, that's all, you know, it's all uh, uh, always progressing and advancing and different things in it. Ruqya is something from revelation we know about. It's from revelation that you can recite and that there is a, uh, by, the, by the command of Allah, by the permission of Allah, via that recitation, of the words of Allah, Allah cures a person. So it is a cure. It is no doubt an ilaj. But can you say it is under the field of tibb and this and that and those things? 
Ibn Qayyim in his book At-Tibb al-Nabawi, he talks about a ruqya in that book. So it's a type of it, but uh, those kinds of classifications are not really, uh, they're not really something which is relevant. If it's a type of tib or it's not a type of tib, is it a type of uh, medicine or is it a type of science or type of this or type of that? The reality is it is from Allah that you recite and by Allah's permission that recitation, Allah brings about the cure within a person. So it is an ilaj. Hmm. All right, we'll leave it there, inshallah. We'll continue with it from next week, inshallah.